0: Welcome to season six of the HPS cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately 90 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with Q Relationships 2, partners of, and friends of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HBS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest. Our guest this week is the CEO and founder of the leading intelligence data and analytics offering for the sub-investment-grade credit market. He attended UVA undergrad and post-college spent almost a decade working for investment firms, focusing his time on high-yield credit and distress investing. In 2012, recognizing a dearth of quality reporting and analysis on the alternative credit space, he launched a company called Reorg Research. From its humble beginnings, Reorg has become the gold standard in reporting and data analysis in the credit space, with a Reorg subscription becoming a requirement for anybody serious about the work we do at HBS. His business took on private equity capital in the last year from investment firm Premiera to support its future growth. And HPS was honored to be part of the financing for that investment. This gentleman is one of the smartest executives I know, but he's also an old friend, and I could not be happier for his and his firm's success. So without any further ado, I'm very excited to welcome in this week's HPS cast guest, Kent Collier, founder and CEO of Reorg Research. Kent, welcome to the pod. Thank
1: you, Colbert. That was an incredible introduction.
0: There you go. Kent, let's start from the start. Where'd you grow up? Where are you from originally?
1: I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., Fairfax, Virginia. My dad lives in the same house that I was born in. And I went to Virginia Tech originally on a scholarship for computer science. And I realized I did not want to be a developer full time. And I went to UVA. I was fortunate to get get into UVA and I did the commerce program there. And very, very fortunate to take a class with a guy named Larry Cochard, who um, people in the investment and credit world know. And he taught a class on high-yield investing. And from there, I just got hooked.
0: Yeah, and why? He's a legend, for those who don't know him. But tell me, what it was it about it that was the draw initially?
1: So I had a number of classmates go to investment banking, go to equity research. And I think one of the things that I try to do is the novel thing. There was not a lot of people in 2003 saying, hey, um, I wanna be a credit, a high yield investor. You know, if if I'm looking at my UVA graduating class, many of them went to investment banking, did out the consulting. And so I said, this is a different path. And if I can carve myself a different path, I can potentially make outsized returns career-wise. I wasn't thinking from a financial perspective then. And I just got hooked. The math made a lot of sense to me. I still don't think I know how to calculate EPS, you know, at 41 years of age. Um, I can't calculate EBITDA leverage, though. So I think it was something that was new and novel. And then, you know, just for background, one of my classes was actually sponsored by Enron. Um, So I actually got to see the bankruptcy kind of up front. And I said, this is just fascinating.
0: I love it. You know, if you go back in that moment of time, Enron went from world beaters, like, you know, fully presenting on campuses, et cetera, to a problem and in a hurry. All right. You graduate Kent in 03. Tell us about your first job out of college.
1: I started work in Springfield, Massachusetts, at a firm called Babson Capital. It's now called Bearings. Babson was owned by Mass Mutual at the time, and I started working in high yield credit under a gentleman named Scott Roth, who now runs research at Bearings. And the second week on the job, a company called Solution filed for bankruptcy, and then the third week on the job, Parmalat filed for insolvency, and. From there, it was high yield and distressed debt for the rest of, really the rest of my life. And so I learned credit on the job, watching these companies fall out of bed. I was spreading numbers, attending conferences, you know, making buy, hold, sell recommendations. So again, relative to some of my peers in 2003 as a 22-year-old, I was just put right on the buy side, which was an incredible honor. Um, and I got to learn very, very quickly. And I was very fortunate that, Scott's boss's boss was a guy named Roger Crandall who's now the CEO of Mass Mutual and for whatever reason took me under his wing and was one of my mentors and still one of my closest friends today. So a lot of dumb luck
0: got me to where I am today. Well, Kent, let's start on that learning side because plenty of people as you say go into banking right out of school because it's got these robust training programs that teaches you finance and then ends up going to the hedge fund, going to private equity, like whatever the next investing seat is. How did you find that adjustment diving, as you said, sort of right into the deep end, as it were?
1: You know, it's interesting. And I'm sure you know people, Colbert, that go from banking to the buy side and they see a bond drop 10 points in their face. And they're like, what is this? This is this is different. When you're long principal capital and a bond moves against you, that's a different feeling, right? That is not selling a bond or a loan or marketing a bond alone. That's taking it in the face. And so. I think going to the deep end and and learning that very, very quickly and, and understanding how to manage risk was something that you can't learn on the banking side. Was I the best at Excel? Did I know all the Excel shortcuts? Did my boss take away my mouse so I could do PowerPoint presentations? No, but I was knee deep in 10Ks, 10Qs, earnings call conferences. So I learned how to understand business and analyze businesses very, very quickly. Again, Solution bonds went from 70 to 30 overnight. Parmalat went from par to 10. That's something you're not going to learn in banking. And just the experience of that is something that I would never trade for the world.
0: Well, and it's funny, you know, I always think your first jobs are formative. Let's use Parmalat as an example. I actually use that example sometimes that people, Parmalat was a complete fraud. They represented that there was a certain amount of cash on the balance sheet, it it wasn't there. And it's important for people who, you know, you go to a good school, you sort of assume good faith in all of this stuff and let's just understand a business. And it's always important to remember, sometimes people are lying. And I feel like those early experiences can be formative to understanding you as an investor later on. Absolutely.
1: And when you go from looking at a primary bond that's coming at 8%, you know, marketed from Goldman Sachs. And and then the next day looking at recoveries for Solution or recoveries for Parmalat, you span a level of experience that you're not going to get on the sell side. And candidly, a lot of the relationships that I made in those very early years, those people are running funds now. You know, I was, again, Analyzing Enron and Enron early in my second job analyzing Lehman. Some of those are my closest friends because we were in the trenches looking at back then Pacer or claims agent sites to understand what was going on in these cases because they were huge puzzles. There were Excel spreadsheets that had 50 tabs. And I also find the buy side, and I'm sure you agree with this, Colbert. I mean, it may have changed recently just given kind of lender on lender or credit on credit or violence, but it was. It was very collaborative for a very, very long time. And some of those are some of the best relationships I still have on wall street.
0: So you're in an investing seat when the 2008 financial crisis hits. You talk about Lehman. Tell me what that experience was like for you. Speaking of the, you know, as I always like to quote Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. That was the ultimate, you know, for anybody sitting with dollars and work in the market. Walk me through that experience for you.
1: I was at a fund called Catalyst Investment Management at the time. And we were very, very focused on buying the top part of the capital structure, and so we saw bank debt trade from 95 to 65 on well-capitalized companies. At the same time, we were short subprime, so that trade generally worked. I remember being at my desk, though, at three in the morning when Lehman filed for bankruptcy, thinking, well, here we go. And the thing that was very, and I still, I'm I not sure if any other event in my career is the same, but you would wake up days and bonds would be down 40 points for no reason. There's just no bid. You probably remember when Lehman's prop desk liquidated and you had bonds that you were marked at 50, that the clearing bid was 10 and nothing changed on the fundamentals. There was just no bid for this paper. And so it was a really, really tough and scary time. One, because you didn't know what was going on in the global economy, but you also didn't know what was going on in the book. You could have the best analysis on Wall Street and you'd still be down 50%. And so again, that's a formative experience. I almost went to business school, right? And if I went to business school in 2007 or 2008, I would have missed that entire experience. It's really interesting. And this is the, jo- I think I've made this joke with you. If you graduated college in 2009, and then you did banking for three years, and you've been on the buy side for the last 10 years, you actually haven't seen anything. Because when you wake up and Lehman files for bankruptcy and your entire book's down 20 or 30%, that's truly
0: terrifying. And I think the educational aspect, you always learn more when things are going wrong than when they're going right, by definition. If you think about that 08-09 timeframe, information was key, and understanding what was going on was key. But it was also really hard to find. It was a different time. And how much of investing through the global financial crisis informed your later entrepreneurial ambitions?
1: So obviously, the sell side has changed quite dramatically in the last 15 years. I think A good portion of reorg success over the last decade has been because of Dodd-Frank and the effects of Dodd-Frank.
0: So for listeners less familiar, yeah, give me the deep dive a little bit on that.
1: Dodd-Frank effectively, after the global financial crisis, was a legislation that was passed during the Obama administration that effectively changed the way that uh, Wall Street operated in terms of their ability to do prop investing. Uh, proprietary trading, proprietary investing.
0: And we say Wall Street, meaning in bulge bracket investment banks, to be clear.
1: Exactly. The Goldman Sachs credit suites of the world. And at the time, those banks employed extremely intelligent, very dedicated desk analysts. Now, they still do, um, but those ranks are down by probably 80% over the last 15 years because the prop book is not there to fund their P&L. Um, So you would have a dedicated Lehman analyst at every single investment bank. You had a dedicated HCA or GGP or Rouse analyst at all the banks. And so we, on the buy side, were relying very much on those people to help us with flow and information, et cetera, et cetera. We would check Pacer, we check claims agent, maybe Bloomberg. But again, it was an extremely collaborative experience. When Dodd-Frank went into effect, a lot of those people went to the buy side or took other jobs. So the number of people providing this content dropped by at least 50%. And so as I thought about kind of entrepreneurship and talking about reorg, thinking about reorg, the two principal sources of information that I was utilizing at the time was PACER. Um, and and again, for people who know PACER is. PACER is the electronic court records that the U S government maintains for every litigation every federal court case in the country. So if you are following anything that's going along with the Department of Justice versus former President Trump, that is on PACER. Bankruptcies are forms of litigation and all the bankruptcy court cases are on PACER. So if I want to look at Enron's bankruptcy docket, where all that information is, it is housed in PACER right now.
0: And for those who aren't, let's say, as mature of investors as you and me, if you go back that time, you know, Pacer, unsurprisingly, as a government website, was incredibly clunky, was hard to use. You had to, you know, there's like a skill set to being good at it ultimately. So, okay, one resource is is Pacer.
1: One resource is Pacer. And again, very archaic, no push alerts, managed by 85 plus different technologists in 85 different courts in the country, not really talking to one another. Um, And then the second is kind of color from the desks right? Call it from the traders, call it from the desk analyst. And obviously there was other sources of information that still exists today. 10 K's, 10 Q's, bank books, credit agreements, et cetera, et cetera. But those two principal sources of information, a lot of people relied on. A lot of, again, side was much more collaborative 10 or 15 years ago than it is today. And so as I thought about Reorg and what I was doing, Again, my viewpoint on life is that I want to give all the information out to everyone at the exact same time and then have their decision-making, investing skill, et cetera, et cetera, be the determinant of success. It should not be the access to information. And so effectively, what I tried to do in the original idea was democratize access to that information.
0: So we'll get to the sort of the early days of REORG, but let's even start more basic. Why was that the right point in your life to do something entrepreneurial? You'd worked at successful firms. Why was that the itch that you needed to scratch?
1: So for people that don't know, after the great financial crisis, I started an anonymous blog. And I wrote about distressed debt investing because I love distressed debt investing. I love bankruptcy more than most people, which is a weird thing to say, but I'm going to run with it. And I had tens of thousands of readers every day. and. I had this problem, which is PACER is awful, Um, it's archaic. I very much believe in the democratization of information. I had a lot of readers. My wife was pregnant with our second kid, and I said, hey, um, I really think I should do this. And she said, well, it's much easier for me to take care of the baby before it's born, so why don't you start now? Um, And I quit my job in December 2012 and got started. During the meantime, though, I had started building that technology, the kind of the PACER interface, And so one of the things that I talk to entrepreneurs today about is you want to do as much as you can to solve the customer problems before you take the big leap, because I just want to manage my risk. Again, I'm a credit investor. I care deeply about the downside. I'm a Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham value investor. Um, And I think about entrepreneurship the same. I want to minimize the downside on taking these risks and have convex upside with limited downside. And I did that by having all the customers and a solution that they very much wanted. I mean, I had talked to a hundred people in the second half of 2012 and showing them Reorg and the Pacer technology, and they all said, this is gonna change the industry.
0: And Kent, give me more on that. So the initial offering, when somebody looked at it, what did they look at and say, ooh, I get this, like I need to be part of this going forward?
1: Everyone in the distressed community complained about Pacer. Again, PACER is one of the principal sources of information you need to be distressed debt investor or a lawyer or advisor, candidly. And it was a pain point. And I said, okay, what if I take your one hour long painful time that you spend on PACER every day and I turn that into two minutes? Would that be valuable to you? And obviously everyone's going to say that's 100% valuable to me. More importantly, because PACER did not have an alerting mechanism outside of you know, unless you were actually involved in the case. People were very much in the dark what was going on in these proceedings. And so in addition to saving them an hour a day or 55 minutes a day, I was pushing them alerts that blew people's
0: mind. You would literally see a bond go up or down 10 points. You would scramble to pacer to try to figure out what that said or released, you know, whatever. And cutting out that cycle time made a massive difference for people, you know, good or bad.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a great example. Lehman regularly was sending out notices of distribution to on its docket. So if you were an investor in Lehman bonds on a quarterly or semi-annual basis, you were getting distributions from the estate. Lehman would sell assets, they would give you money. Those notices and the amount of those distributions were posted on Pacer. And so these Lehman bonds would move two or three points And people would say, oh, it must have hit Pacer. I thought that was ridiculous. So what we did is we sent that notice out to people immediately. So everyone had that information. So again, democratizing information instead of just being lucky and checking Pacer. That made me very angry when people would check Pacer before I did and made a trade before I did. That just was ridiculous to me.
0: Yeah. Okay. So this is what was missing in the market that you solved. Let's start on the business itself. You know, you had spent your career as an investor working at companies of various size, but scale businesses that were there. How hard was it for you to learn how to get a business off the ground from scratch?
1: I mean, I'm still learning. I'm still, I'm still learning today. Um, you know, I, I'm a product-driven CEO. I'm not a market-driven CEO. I'm not a sales-driven CEO. I'm not a technologist. I'm a product-driven CEO. And I think I found the right product. I think a lot of companies can be solved with great products, poor rest of everything else. If you have a bad product, it's just not going to work at the end of the day, right? So I think because we were so focused on the product, I could leg my way into building a sustainable organization. I also got extremely lucky, 99.5% of this is all luck, by the way. Um, I got extremely lucky in hiring some of the early people at Reorg. I hired one of the best salespeople at my principal competitor. And he helped us scale very, very quickly. I hired an an analyst from Barclays that could help us build tear sheets and build research. I hired an incredible reporter from another competitor. And so hiring these people and putting this product in place allowed us to kind of limp into a real business. But it is extremely difficult, right? I was an investor. I was on the other side of the fence. I did not know what a board deck looked like i did not know how you interact with
0: your cfo these are things that i kind of learned on the job well and per that point though ken learning them on the job like how did you have mentors that you learned from like how did you get up to curve on what you didn't know
1: i would say a lot of trial and error um, i would talk to other ceos in the space new york has a vibrant fintech scene and we're one of the original fintech companies we did do a very very early round of investment capital in uh, the first half of 2013. And so I leaned on those investors and saying, hey, I have this problem. I have no idea how to hire a CTO. I have no idea. Where do I even start? And so I asked a lot of questions. I think the best CEOs are intellectually curious and they ask a lot of questions and then they evaluate the inputs that they get to decide the right course of action. And so utilizing my investor network, utilizing the FinTech network in New York City. I mean, people don't know this, but I took a sales class at General Assembly in 2012 because I had no idea how to sell a product, right? What did I have done for the last 10 years of my career? I had bought bonds and stocks and bank debt, and hopefully they went up and didn't go down. That is very, very far afield from managing an organization. So relying on advisors and the network really helped us go forward. I will say, though, it all comes down to the product. I don't care who I talk to. If the product sucked, no one was going to buy it anyways.
0: Yeah. Though I love your intellectual curiosity point, Kent, because I do think the best executives, you know, they don't pretend they know something that they don't know. They ask the questions and read and react to people's responses to it. As you say, you're still learning today. Tell me about those early lessons, though. When you look back, what are the building blocks from those early days that still matter for you as you think about being the CEO these days?
1: I would say one of the things that we are very, very focused on as an organization is a customer-first mentality. So I think in the very, very early days, even before I left my job in 2012, I was always talking to customers and asking them, hey, what is something that you do 15 minutes before reorg? And what is something you do 15 minutes after reorg? And that has naturally expanded our product portfolio. Oh, that's
0: such a good question. Yeah,
1: We did not do covenant analysis until 20. 2015, 2016, because people would say, oh, you know, I'm looking at this bond and I'm pulling up the covenant analysis. We should do that, right? One of the first things we built after we built Pacer is a really powerful SEC technology, right? Which is still one of the most used on Wall Street today. And why? Because people would use Pacer and then they would pull up SEC reports. Like, why can't they do that on Reorg, right? And so one of the things that I'm hyper-focused on is experimenting, doing Because I'm fully aware that I'm going to fail in many, many things, but I don't understand the concept of mistakes. It's either you did something wrong and you learn from it, or you did something wrong and you didn't learn from it, and that is a failure. And that's why we've been able to scale so quickly in 10 years.
0: So we've talked about the new offerings over the last 10 years. When you launched, you were the market. There was literally no other option for what you did, but success breeds competition, and other companies are trying to be relevant in what you do. How hard is it to continue to differentiate Reorg versus your competition?
1: You know, I think the ways that I competed with some of the majors of financial information, principal competitors, and the Bloombergs, and Factset's, the World, is that I focused on a very, very small area. That was relevant to a high margin customer, which was Dockets back then or Pacer. Um, and I view what competitors are doing today very similar to what I did 10 years ago. They're taking a very small part of the market that has, again, a high margin customer that Reorg may not be the best at and is really attacking that market, which is a very, very solid strategy and something that we are hyper vigilant on, right? You know, from our ability to move quickly. One, because I think we just are a nimble organization that is very, very action-oriented, plus the capital we've been able to garner with originally Warburg and now Premiera, We're able to take calculated investments, whether that be organic or inorganic, to really strengthen our product offering. Again, going back to that question, 15 minutes before and 15 minutes after, that has actually led to a number of inorganic opportunities. We bought a company in the beginning of 2021 called Agreedium, that basically spreads high-yield financials in Europe. And the European financial data was just kind of messy. It wasn't good on Bloomberg or Cap IQ, And we had a lot of U.S.-based investors that were looking at European high-yield and distressed situations. And so that was an inorganic opportunity. And we've been able to send scale agreement to European loans and then U.S. bonds and U.S. loans as well. So taking what the competition is doing and saying, hey, how could we do that better? Or how can we partner with that organization to super scale that organization?
0: And I think our listeners will understand this hearing you talk about it. But you really do, when you think about it from your employee perspective, you need people who understand finance, law, and really journalism and media. Like, it's a trifecta. You know, we've been in and will be in a historically tight labor market. How have you been able to retain and attract talent through what you've been doing?
1: You use the term trifecta. We actually use that in outside marketing. You know, we do have analysts, lawyers, and reporters. That is why we differentiate our content. That is why we're different than some other organizations. We don't just have reporters. We don't just have analysts. We don't just have lawyers. We have a unique level of content, which we call intelligence, right? To your question around the hiring market, the labor market, on the content side, there are a lot of fourth, fifth, sixth-year lawyers that do not want to become partners, they want to be intellectually stimulated, not just doing leasehold rejections in a case. They want to look at a lot of cases. And eventually, maybe they want to go to the buy side. And we've had lots of analysts at Reorg go to the buy side. The financial analysts, same sort of thing. There's a lot of bankers that eventually want to get to the buy side, and Reorg is a great place for that. Um, journalists, obviously, journalism is, is, is a place that we've made tons of investments in. And we've really organically grown those people, You know, getting them out of journalism school and turning them into incredible reporters. On the non-content side, I still think we operate closer to a startup than a $100-plus 1000000 organization. I work very, very closely with the tech and product team, the recruiting team. If you go to a major, you're not going to have access to the CEO. So I think operating with that nimbleness has allowed us to really attract and retain talent. Plus, we've had two of the best private equity firms invest in us, so we're obviously doing something right. And honestly... There's only a couple companies in the future that could be the next Bloomberg, and we're one of them. And I think that's a really amazing rocket ship to be on.
0: Well, so you touched on part of this about you know, potential geographic expansion. You talked about organic and inorganic growth of some of these acquisitions. What are you excited about for your in the coming years, like when you look at the next initiatives for you?
1: Yeah, I would say the thing I'm most excited about, generally speaking, is that credit investors globally are somewhere between three and five years behind the equity investor in terms of their utilization of data. And Reorg is on the bleeding edge of that. We've recently released our data leak, which is called credit cloud. So I'm very, very focused on the data element. You know, Reorg has historically been known around our hundred different, you know, we write about a hundred stories a day now globally. We're just as focused now on the data component because more investors, advisors, and lawyers are utilizing data to make decisions. If you think about the growth of alternative data on the buy side for long-short equity, that's been a huge growth and it's been a real differentiator for a number of, of funds. We want to do the same thing for funds, advisors, and lawyers on the credit side. So that's one thing I'm extremely, extremely excited about. I would say the other theme that I'm excited about and we're investing lots and lots of money on is the move to more lending and more direct lending generally. The institutional, broadly syndicated loan market is huge and growing, but the direct lending market is growing much, much faster. And it is a capability that we have in-house today that we will actually take all of the direct lender's portfolio and we will index all that fundamental data so you can run screens, reports on trends of EBITDA margins and retailers in your portfolio. That's something that did not exist three years ago. And because more decision makers are utilizing more of this data... What we want to do is again democratize information. If you think about how analysis was done in the broader syndicated loan market five years ago, analysts had spreadsheets on their desktop. That is neither scalable or democratized information. And by bringing that all into a cloud-based database, I can give PMs, traders, heads of research more information than they've ever had before. And again. I want to give everyone the same amount of information at the same time and have them be judged on that prowess. So I'm very, very excited about all the initiatives that we're doing around data, but also very excited around the initiatives that we're doing on the direct lending and broadly syndicated loan side.
0: Well, Ken, per your point, I mean, there's an opacity to the direct lending market. It's very much where you started, right? You looked at Pacer and you said, well, this is actually, there's tons of incredibly important information on here and it's impossible for people to get out in a timely fashion. You know, finding ways to crack the next nut on that sort of data set makes complete sense to me. All right, before we move to the last part of the podcast, Ken, you have had a front row seat to distress investing over the last 20 years, both as an investor now and as an incredibly important partner for what everybody does. What are the trends you are most struck by? Like, tell me what you see for the next three to five years. What's going to happen in the evolution of distress investing?
1: So I've touched on this a couple times. I do view the buy side as less collaborative than it has been in the past. Given that the governing docs, indentures, credit agreements of many of the high yield and uh, issuers and leverage loan issuers are so weak, and the amount of capital that's been raised in drawdown funds and private equity style funds, I do think that the trend on creditor on creditor or lender on lender violence is going to
0: increase. Only to say, for those less familiar, what that means is. You know, historically, the lenders would organize together and they would fight for the best outcome for them as a group versus a company if something's gone wrong. And what we've seen in recent trends is you know, a small group or a single lender doing things that would disadvantage others within the same tranche of debt, for clarity.
1: Exactly. And the capital structures have gotten so big, so the relative cost of litigation is very, very small relative to the eventual outcomes of these names. I mean, these, these deals are enormous right now. So I'm happy to spend $10 million on a litigation if I'm going to make $100 million. Right. So I think you're gonna see more litigation, more creditor on creditor violence. One, because the docs are so bad, but I also just think the buy side is much less collaborative. I do worry about the sell side and their balance sheets becoming thinner and thinner. That creates gaps in the market. And instead of bonds going down a point, they go down five points, 10 points. And that just gets very, very hard for people to calculate risk. I also are generally worried about just the health of the CLO market today. You know, a, a AAA CLO just got priced at 200. So a lot of what we've seen in terms of the health of the private equity market has actually been driven by the health of the lending market. And if the lending market stays broken like it is today, it's going to be very, very tough sailing for private equity, the general economy, et cetera, et cetera. I think people underestimate the importance of the broadly syndicated loan market on the global economy. It's very, very important. I also think the trend to more direct lending is is something that would be hard to bet against. Um, Direct lenders are getting bigger. You're seeing banks do that themselves now, kind of like they did 25 years ago. And what that means for transparency in the market, but also how liquid things are and eventual recoveries is going to be really, really interesting. And then finally, I think we've been in this very, very interesting period over the last 10 years where you've seen interest rates effectively decline. And so floating rate debt has been extremely interesting for a borrower's perspective because their interest rates were effectively nullified by low interest rates. You saw a big trend of moving to floating to fixed rate. I think that might change because people have always been betting against the bond market. I think that bond market is probably here to stay for a really, really long time. And then the last thing is this market is becoming so international. China is the fastest growing credit market on earth. And therefore the distressed credit market in China is the fastest growing market on earth. So I think more funds are gonna be focused on more international opportunities to just capture alpha. So those are the things that I would bet on.
0: I think that's exactly right. And you know, it's been a generically pretty benign environment obviously for the last 50 years leading into the most recent couple years of volatility. And that international point is right. I mean, everybody created a European office in 09, 2010, and it never quite materialized as a distressed market the way you'd expect. Between wage inflation, energy inflation, input costs generally, we believe you're going to see a lot there. Well, listen, Kent, exciting stuff. As we said, we're a lender to uh, to Reorg. We're excited about what you guys are doing, and congrats on all the success so far. With that, let me move to the last segment of the podcast, which is something we like to call best ideas. It's where we offer up something that's added value in our lives recently, and we call it best ideas because, like you, we are investors who always like to maximize exposure to those best ideas. Kent, as our guest, I'm going to ask you to go first. What is your best idea this week?
1: On my 40th birthday, it was February of 2021, and it was the depths of the pandemic. And uh, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't have a 40th birthday party, I couldn't do anything. So I actually interviewed a dozen of my mentors all over the age of 50 about their lives. What would you have told your 40 year old self over a beer? I had incredible conversations with amazing individuals that have really shaped my life. One of those people gave me the best advice I've ever gotten that has really fundamentally changed my life. He said on a daily basis, he writes 10 things that he's grateful for to his closest friends. And it's a 10 to 15 minute process where he sits down and says, what am I thankful for? What am I grateful for? And I've started doing that. And it has fundamentally changed the relationships in my life. It's fundamentally changed the way that I appreciate all the amazing things that I have. And I think that 10 to 15 minutes is kind of my meditation to understand how lucky I am But also sharing those gifts with people that are close to me in my life has really strengthened a number of relationships in my life. And I've done it pretty much every day for the last year and a half.
0: I love it. We all have a ton to be grateful for. I couldn't agree more. And I love that as a practice. That's a great idea. Okay. So then for mine, as listeners know, I like to be inspired by the guest of the week. You grew up in the Virginia, D.C. area. You went to UVA. I've actually spent a fair amount of time down there at events and weddings in Charlottesville. And it's hard not to be inspired by American history when you're there. It feels like most founding fathers in the U.S., like they have a home somewhere in that area or had one. And in addition, given we're recording this coming into the election season in the U.S. this fall, I started thinking about American history, political campaigns. My best idea this week is a great podcast that's called Whistle Stop. It's hosted by a reporter. He's a news anchor. He's also a presidential historian named John Dickerson, who I think is fantastic. And Whistle Stop, as the name suggests, takes a look at presidential campaigns throughout U.S. history, with each episode highlighting, you know, a specific candidate or a specific event. He's a remarkable storyteller. And what's great about it is, on one level, campaigning for president, as you can imagine, has evolved considerably over time, but there are some things that are just constant throughout history. There's about 100 episodes of it, so you can pick out whatever might suit your interest. Um, The two that I really love, there's one about Kennedy meeting with Nikita Khrushchev that I highly recommend, um, and there's one about the 25th Amendment and William Henry Harrison to get you started, but you really can't go wrong. So, in honor of a UVA grad educated in the cradle of American presidential history, I recommend the podcast Whistle Stop as my best idea this week. Kent, with that, it's time to say goodbye. Congratulations, as I said, on all the success with Rework to Date, and good luck in the future. We're excited to see what's next. Thank
1: you for all your support, Colbert. I really appreciate you and what you're doing here.
0: Thanks again to our guest. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. The opinions expressed on this podcast are that of the host, Colbert Cannon, and the guest of each episode, and do not necessarily reflect the views of HPS Investment Partners.